Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? In the beginning, there was Adam and Eve. This is where humans and their reproduction begins. Fully formed, ready to go, so says the big book anyway. But author and researcher Kat Bohannon has other ideas about who Eve is and how her body contributed to the continuation of humanity, starting 200 million years ago in the Jurassic period with a cute, small, little rodent called Morgie. Kat's the author of Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. Kat, welcome to you. Hi, thanks for having me. What I find fascinating about your book is the theory that there, and research that suggests there isn't just one Eve. There are several who've lived throughout the history of the planet, moreover humanity, and they've each in their own way moved human evolution forward. Who are all these different Eves? Where do we start? Oh, yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is that we don't just have one mother. We have many, as you say. Um, you know, most origin stories begin fairly similar ways across different cultures. There's usually a god of some sort, maybe a few. There's a bit of clay, somebody spitting, and eventually we have bodies. Yeah. Um, but actually, in evolution, we have many, many different points of origin. But mammals, of which we are one, go all the way back 200 million years, where our Eve in her Eden, her particular situation, is well under the feet of actual dinosaurs. She is a burrowing creature. The early mammalia form I use as an exemplar, not our direct ancestor, but, you know, close enough, is this rodent-like thing called Morganicodon, Morgi. She was very prolific. She was kind of everywhere. Um, and she is where we first start making milk, actually. She's still laying eggs, though. So we're laying eggs, but also we're the Madonna nursing the holy children all the way back uh, 200 million years ago under dinosaurs. And, and this is really where mammals get started. So we're 200 million years in and we've managed to populate the planet. Some might say too much, but that's an argument for another day. It seems like the design, and I don't use that word lightly because uh, obviously the connotations that it has depending on your world view, but we are yeah. pretty good at procreation. You might, you, might, you might agree. I'm sure you would. I would agree that we're good at sex. I mean, well, you know, all feelings aside, I would say the actual technical scientific sense of the term. How about that? Yes, we are okay. um, we're fairly uh, horny. As a species, I mean, compared to some other primates, not compared to all. But the thing is, um, we're actually kind of crap at the making of the babies. Like the initial contact point, we're, we're reasonably good at that. Um, but the actual gestation uh, and the delivery and the raising of offspring that don't up and die like 50% of the time, actually, we're really bad at that as a species. Our pregnancies and births and postpartum recoveries are longer and harder and more prone to dangerous and crippling and sometimes deadly complications for both the baby and the mother. We actually suck at this compared to other primates. Well, except for squirrel monkeys, and we feel real bad for them. But for the most part, most other primates are much better at this. Let me let me make it real for you, though. Okay, first time human mom will be in labor, um, I don't know, roughly a dozen hours, sometimes 16, can take more, mine took more, let's not get into that. A chimp mom is on average about 30 minutes. 
top to bottom, as in start a labor and uh, baby. Yeah, that's a, that's about a half an hour. So um, there are many reasons, even just in the birth alone, that we're terrible at this. But it's also true that our pregnancies are longer than you'd expect for an animal our size, that gestation period. And our postpartum recovery is due to all of that are, well, also, frankly, kind of terrible. So no, it's really surprising we got to 8 billion. We are not a good candidate for world domination if you just look at our body plan. So, yeah, one egg, uh, an extraordinarily energy-intensive process, huge postpartum recovery. I get it compared to other species. However, if we go back to this concept of design, uh, Mm. if it was intentional, (laughs) this gives rise to a fascinating feature of human reproduction, which can be loosely described as the sisterhood, this idea that midwifery plays a large part in our continued survival, something that we don't see in other animal species. Yeah, exactly. So given your a priori, given your givens, you say, okay, human species, bad at this. All right, so so then what? So how do we get to 8 billion? Well, we're very cooperative, we're very clever. There's lots of ways we tell that story. But the most fundamental story then to an evolutionary biologist is, well, being bad at reproduction is a hard stop. That's a hard problem. You can limp around on one foot, you can have a big weird tail, but if you're bad at making babies, you're kind of headed for extinction, right? But in our case, we're really good at building behavioral workarounds. So by analyzing fossilized pelvises and bones and growth rates, it seems that all the way back to the Australopithecines, so that's 3.2 million years ago, like Lucy, you may have heard of her, she had more than likely a midwife for precisely the same reason we do. She had very large babies compared to a small pelvic outlet, right? Which is to say she gestated big stuff and needed help getting it out. So in that sense, the reason we're still here now is, well, it's gynecology. It's the history of OBGYNs, man. The reason we're here is Lucy had a midwife and we've had midwives ever since. But it's not just that moment of birth though, right? Because any good OB will tell you how the birth's going to go depends on that female's entire reproductive life. It's not even just your prenatal care. It's kind of the whole life you've lived up to the point at which you become pregnant. So that means that every intervention you do on your reproductive life, whether increasing your fertility or sometimes down-regulating it, is going to make you more successful as a species. So the whole umbrella of gynecology matters for how we got here. You talk about this concept of who has access to bodies, and it's a sort of a brutal way of thinking about it, but it really is at the core of how um, you describe the societal rules and behaviours that we've developed around sex and fertility and female bodies, rules that might be considered sexism these days. You sort of can make this connection in in order to manage our terrible reproductive systems, these rules uh, were created. How do you mean? Yeah, so... My book is a hopeful book, and I am a hopeful person. Believe it or not, the fact that we're terrible at reproduction turns into a hopeful story because, well, we invent gynecology, and then we get to get our hands on the the levers of reproduction, the levers of evolution, right? We, we get to take the reins in our species' destiny from early hominins forward with that simple act of helping each other survive, right? But 
That's basically a behavioral workaround, okay? That's what our species is really good at. We're good at being clever. You may have heard of that. But we're good, essentially, at modifying our behaviors and inventing tools and technologies and situations of knowledge that we can share in order to overcome our body's limitations in our environment. Okay, well, there is one other way to intervene on a female's fertility, right? Well, gynecology is kind of the flip side of the coin uh, to sexism. Right now, I don't mean sexism just like people being jerks to you on the street if you happen to have ovaries, that just happens. Okay, I'm not down playing how serious it is, I'm just saying that that's like a big umbrella. What I mean by sexism is what you just said we have these rules that regulate access to female bodies how much of her body can be seen, where, and when, and by whom, who has access to it well before you even arrive at the question of like, well, does she get to have sex? Who does she get to have sex with? In what circumstances? And when? And then the whole baby making thing, right? Every culture in the world has these sex rules that effectively regulate female fertility. All of our rules are different, actually. There's no one base set of rules, but there is a base set of modifying access to female bodies. That is a pretty base set of this thing that I call uh, the root of sexism. Now, the good side of that, which puts a bitter taste in my mouth too, okay, the good side of that is that it does do things to make many females pregnant under more controlled circumstances, right? Like, probably not a great idea to become pregnant when you're 12. Let's not do that, all right? Maybe if you have social rules around that, that helps keep more girls alive until the point at which their bodies might be ready for such a thing. Should she choose, I'm very American, should she choose to do such a thing, okay? However, the bad side of it has long since caught up to any health benefits there may have been in deep, deep time. I mean, like hundreds of thousands of years ago, right? Like so like now, it's an overcorrection in, in your view. Because I'm curious exactly, about this view. Yeah. Because I, I, I'm, I, I hear this through, you know, potentially conservatives ears, and I hate to bring politics into a pure conversation about biology, but it, it, it would seem that that view could be misconstrued as a conservative view. But you're arguing for the biological imperative behind these social constructs. Am I understanding this correctly? <sighs> Thank you for asking. I would say... Now, I am obviously wildly liberal and American and all the things no one would ever take me uh, otherwise. But when it comes to the science, you have to say, well, many of these things evolve long before we arrive at feeling one way or another about it on the political spectrum. Yeah, mm. because I, I, I don't think that... Um, you know, in the 300,000 year history of our species, uh, everyone felt the same way about things as we do, obviously not. And how we evolved to survive and thrive is going to be different. So what you might call the biological imperative, I would say is, um, well, is your species extinct or not? If you have an inherently dangerous way of making babies, then having behavioral workarounds that regulate when and how such things happen in one type of environment or another might give you some advantage. But yeah, there's a massive overcorrection at this point. At this point, gynecology is so much better at saving the lives of women and girls at every point of our reproductive lives than regulations around whether or not a chick gets to get a bit flirty in one environment or another, right? Mm. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's beyond an overcorrection. At this point, it's a bad fit. Author Kat Bohannon is my guest on RN Drive. We're talking the well, relatively straightforward topic and rather understated role, you, should, you could say, about the female uh, place, if you like, in human evolution over the last 200 million years. 
so despite all the physical aspects of reproduction and reproductive evolution, you discuss uh, the role of love in our eaves, this interesting kind of take you have when you go back to comparing promiscuous chimps and harem-style gorillas and bonobos. (laughs) I mean, we always love to talk about bonobos. They seem to be the sort of... Don't um, we? The the 60s chimp, we might might call them. So tell me, what do they show us about love and monogamy and the way that we've developed modern Western society? So I had this weird job for a decade, which was writing this book about the evolution of our species from early mammals forward. Right. Um, On the one hand, I kind of won the nerd lottery. On the other hand, that means I get a lot of questions. And one of the big questions I kept getting from many different people, scientists and otherwise, as I was working on the book is like, okay, okay, Kat, but uh, how are we doing it back then? right? How were we going about our sex lives? Um, Sometimes those questions were more specific than others. I know this is radio. But in this case, what people really wanted to know is like, okay, were we like a harem-based thing, like, which is probably, you know, so one male and a bunch of females, kind of King Solomon and his wives, was that what was going on? Were we more like our ever-sexy chimp friends? Actually, both chimps and bonobos uh, have wild sex lives. The bonobos just that much more so, um, but very promiscuous is the point. Kind of everybody having sex all the time. Okay. Or were we more like wolves? Were we more like monogamous family bands with a male and female at the head and the children and eventual pairing off, you know, and moving on and building societies that way? One of the big mistakes we make about wolves actually is thinking that, you know, it's a bunch of different males competing for alphas. That's only in captivity. In the wild, it's actually a mom and dad. That's who the alphas are. That's why the other males aren't having sex with their mother because it's their mother. Moving on. Right. So which of these three models, in other words, was where we came from as a species? Well, there are things you can tell about a body. And um, one of the things you can do is say, well, compared to our cousins, like the chimps or say gorillas, or what do our bodies look like compared to theirs? And what of it is connected to our likely mating strategy back in the day? Well, there are many things I could tell you about penises. Again, not sure about the rules here, but let's go with something a little more mundane, shall we? Uh, The uh, small furry package tucked just underneath on the males, holding the testicles. Okay, so in the gorilla, who is a dominant male, lots of females, doesn't compete a lot with other males for access to females. He actually has a teeny tiny little package, just like peanuts, just like not a lot going on down there. Just very, very small balls, ladies and gentlemen. That's what a gorilla's packing. Technical uh, term. Small balls, yes. Yeah, good to know. Good to know. Good to know. So, and in a chimp, it's quite the opposite. Just massive knockers, just like a cartoonist had drawn those things. Like, how is he even walking around? Whole lot there, right? And that's what it looks like in a promiscuous society for primates. Why? Well, because the male has to kind of um, blitzkrieg the cervix, as it were. He has to actually produce a lot of material, let's say, to have reproductive success with females who are having sex with a lot of other males. That's what it looks like when you have a lot of male-male competition. And in the chimp, even though possibly as many as a third of those babies are fathered by uh, nearby males, uh, she actually has a lot of sneaky sex, but moving on, he's for the most part, he's still winning. He's still winning in the reproductive game. He doesn't have to invest as much, so he doesn't make as much. Okay. Human beings, kind of Goldilocks, kind of right in the middle, kind of sweet spot, kind of not too big, not too small. So that at least, what we're smuggling, seems to indicate that we're somewhere between the two and probably have been for as long as we've been making packages like these. 
Here I thought it was the battle for quality, but sometimes the battle for quantity seems to win the day. I'm mm. curious because you, you've described yourself as intellectually promiscuous, which I think is a wonderful <laughs> term. And, and the book covers a huge amount of ground in terms of different disciplines of study, which I think makes <laughs> sense given the topic matter bleeds into so many different areas. But I'm curious about what you would say to critics who say it's too vast to have an uh, accurate uh, sort of level of detail for each time period that you look at. And I'm curious about your mechanism because you really have a, a view uh, much like a, a, a fire tower above a forest over a vast range of research here? Well, there are many reasons it took a decade. Um, but thankfully, I was already an interdisciplinary researcher and scholar um, and working in a few different departments at Columbia University when I was doing my PhD. So I was used to reading outside my field. I was used to walking into another department and, well, frankly, being embarrassed by what I didn't, didn't know, but then learning and, and mastering more. But in terms of telling the story here, well, the question is, is the female. The female body is the question that was vastly unanswered for a very long time until recently. And now a lot of really cutting edge science is going down in many, many different disciplines, refiguring how females fit into this story. How does the female body make a difference? So in that sense, it's kind of, um, well, the job is a bit of a thought experiment. As, you know, if the assumption previously was, well, the sex didn't really matter, well, then the thought experiment is, when and how and what do we know if the sex does matter, right? Um, and so for each of the chapters then, I just picked a key moment for where we are in the evolution of mammals and said, okay, um, in this moment, where does sex really matter? Yeah? And if, the funny thing about mammals is that a lot of mammalian evolution is very much tied to female bodies. It's very much tied to how we go about making babies and raising them. You know, um, lactation, live birth, um, becoming primates meant having a certain sensory array, which really changed how you communicate with offspring and so on and so forth up that tree. So while it's true that I, um, I had to do an abridged bibliography for the book because Knopf um, and Random House really didn't want to publish this in volumes, you know, um, uh, it, it's... It's true that there is just a lot to do there. And thankfully, there's a lot more to do. I hope a lot of people take this book and really run with it, really go to the races and do even more wonderful research and tell us new things about what I got wrong and where to go from here. Well, thankfully, you are in the fire tower across all of this vastness of, uh, of learning and, and research. I just wanted to ask, obviously, on a personal note, you have two children and I wonder how you think of Morgie going back 200 million years to your own two children. I'm not sure of, of their sex, but do you, mm -hmm. do you think there's a straight line connection there or is it much more uh, full of wiggles and turns than we think? Well, evolution is always full of wiggles and turns. Um, but the straight line that goes there is simply that I am a mother and I have offspring. And that's how evolution works, people. These are the bodies that make the babies that make the babies that make the babies. Um, I would say I'm very envious of Morgie. She laid eggs. And um, that sounds better. That just sounds better uh, than, than really just how most mammals do this crazy thing. I would love to have just laid a nice catch of eggs and just sat on them occasionally. I'd be, I'd be down. I'd be down for that. Unfortunately, no, we do live birth and we do gestation. Um, I also see this incredibly deep and long and, and rich story for how mammals at all got here. 
um, which was very much an accident, which was very much thanks to a very large asteroid. Uh, and dinosaurs are still kind of pissed off about that, or however much the common sparrow gets pissed about things, you know. Um, they really had it going well for a while, and then it uh, it became our turn on land anyway, mostly on land. The fish are still doing pretty well in the oceans. Um, I, th I suppose when I look at my own children, I, um, I feel hopeful. Well, actually, a lot of the times I feel frustrated and pissed off. They're three years old and five years old, and... Um, it's a, it, I, it's a I lot. It's a lot. I love yeah. them. I love them. Mm. But you know, um, but I also inevitably feel hopeful because, uh, well, in our evolution, each of these Eves, these last common ancestors that got us where we are, they didn't know they were the last. Well, they didn't know much at all, of course, when they were a little weaselly squirrel things, you know, um, but they didn't know that they were the authors of humanity's tomorrows we would have been completely unimaginable even to our own ancestors 300,000 years ago. Um, but we are. We are the authors of humanity's tomorrows, each one of us, inevitably, every day, and all of the choices we make. And my children will be too. So, so I see the hope in it. Kat, congratulations on this book. I'd love to sit around and talk about monkey testicles with you all afternoon. Uh, but oh, alas. same. <laughs> the clock is calling. Author and researcher Kat Bohannon has been my guest. Her book is Eve. It's out now. Great to talk to you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. 